and reminding us that soon and very soon. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. Uh, turn to Hebrews. It's at the very, almost the very end of the Bible. We are preaching our way slowly through this book, uh, taking it bit by bit. Uh, we work slowly through books because we know that all of this is God's Word, and we know there's a great danger among us to just pick and choose from God's Word. And so uh, we work through uh, a book at a time. Right now we're in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to start with uh, verse 7. And we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Listen to God's word. So as the Holy Spirit says, quote, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was the Lord angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned? and whose bodies perished in the wilderness. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. And many of you know I have a four-year-old, and Claire and I like to go on road trips to the beach, she just completed an eight-hour trip to Georgia visiting a 98-year-old nanny. And on the road with a four-year-old, there's a lot of questions about uh, how much longer is it going to be. And we say, well, it's going to be four more hours. And Jack will say, you can't keep track of that. And I can say, well, Dad, babies talk a lot. <laughs> That's two movies. Uh, I can remember my parents doing the same to me as a kid. And today, uh, we're uh, going to continue on this journey God's been taking us. Uh, so like I would do with Jack, let me outline where we're going, and then we'll dig in for a few minutes. First, we're going to see uh, that today, today, we will either harden our hearts or we will soften them. We will either harden our hearts by living in the good old days and, uh, or thinking with our stomachs and living in resentment. Or we'll soften our hearts um, by submitting to God's word, by encouraging one another, and by remembering God's ways. And then we'll finish today by offering you uh, several practical ways uh, that you can start to soften your heart uh, today. Things that you could do uh, this afternoon uh, to soften your heart. That you might be more sensitive to God's leading and more uh, sensitive to God's Holy Spirit. 
to teach us uh, these lessons uh, that we're going to see the preacher in Hebrews is going to call to mind uh, the most famous story in the Old Testament, the most famous story in the Jewish faith. It was uh, out of the Exodus. Many of you remember how God led the Israelites out of Egypt by Moses and through the wilderness. They are there for 40 years. They've been waiting for God to give them the promised land. And they saw that Egypt had been showing up in Scripture for the last month, month and a half, uh, that these people had been set free, not slaves to Pharaoh, but reunites the heavens and the earth we live on that and we saw uh, when my friend Janice Matthias Smith was here almost two months ago preaching uh, that God took his people the long way around that God could have taken them directly from Egypt to the promised land a journey of 11 days but he knew that if they were to go immediately the short distance they would face war and they would be crushed because their faith could not stand it And so instead, God led them through the wilderness for 40 years to prepare their faith for what God was calling them to. In the same way, God is leading us through this life, through trials and tests, through all kinds of um, what seem to be wilderness experiences to prepare us for what God has for us in the future. Paul will say it like this in Romans chapter 8. He'll say, I consider uh, the trials we are enduring right now not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that they're preparing for us, that God is preparing something so good. But it all comes down today. You see, life on the journey of faith, life following Jesus, yanks us out of our comfort zone. But every day outside of your comfort zone is a day where you have to walk by faith. You have to make another decision whether you will continue to walk forward or you will shrink back. Whether you will move towards Jesus or whether you will uh, move away from him back towards that place of comfort. You can only live one day at a time. Yesterday, you may have stepped out of your comfort zone. Yesterday, you might have put your trust in Jesus. Yesterday, you might have joined the adventure with Jesus. But what will you do today? Today, you will either move towards Jesus or you'll move away. Today, you will either live out of faith or you will live out of fear. Today, you will either uh, nurse your resentments or you will fertilize your trust in God. Today, you will either give and receive grace or you will harden your heart. So what what will you do today? Whether you trusted Jesus yesterday, will you trust him today? You see, today is the only real time that exists. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite writers, a guy named C.S. Lewis, uh, Jack Lewis, he says it this way. He says, humans live in time, but God destines them to live in eternity. 
God therefore wants humans to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity, of the present moment, and of it only humans have an experience analogous to the experience which God has of reality as a whole. In the present alone, freedom and actuality are offered to them. God would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with God, or concerned with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with God or their eternal separation from God, or else focused on obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, and giving thanks for the present pleasure. You see, God would have us concerned either with eternity or the present. We tend to think of eternity as the future, but the eternity is just life with God in God's eternal now. And God would have us concerned with the present because the present is the only time that actually exists. The past or a memory in the future is a mirage. But right now we have choices. Right now we have will. Right now we can act. The devil would like us to move into either the past or the future, but God wants us to be here, to be available. So today, you will either soften your heart, you will either listen to God speaking, and you'll fall in love with Jesus, or you will harden your heart, and you will nurse your grudges, and you will think with your stomach. But you'll do one or the other. You'll either be faithful or faithless today. We see in the Israelites' journey through the wilderness that they were faced with many todays. That the, the deliverance from Egypt did not settle all of their questions, but instead they came up against a day where they had to trust God again. We see this um, in, in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is going to call to mind uh, Psalm 95. Verses 7 through 11, that part where he says, Today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on an oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. What he's calling to mind here, the psalmist and the author of Hebrews is calling to mind uh, the, the story of Israel and specifically several instances in Exodus uh, 16 and 17 and then in Numbers 14. Uh, when what happens is this, the Israelites get out of Egypt. The Pharaoh's army got drowned. Whoa, Mary, don't you weep. That's an old song. Somebody might remember it. And they get out there, and three days into the desert, they hadn't had anything to drink. And they start to grumble against God, and they start to resent Moses. And they ask God for water, and God does. He gives it to them. Uh, Moses throws a piece of wood into a pond, and it makes the water potable. I don't know how that worked, but God can do anything. And then they go in a little bit further, and they start to grumble. We don't have any food. We're going to die. And, uh, and God provides them manna from heaven and quail at, at dinner time. And then later they get further into the desert and they don't have any water at all, not even sour water or bitter water. And God provides for them, as we saw from uh, Kelly's reading, that God provides for them water from a rock. But they grumble against God over and over and over again, slowly conditioning their heart harder 
and harder and harder until finally what we see in Numbers chapter 14, uh, they get all the way to the promised land. 38 years, they get all the way there. They, they get to the promised land and they see it and they send out spies to go see the promised land. And they see how good it is and they get fruit from it, plums and grapes and, and they're, they're enjoying this incredible place. And God says, okay, take it. But they won't go because they're afraid of the giants who live there. They're afraid of going to battle to take the promised land. And so they refuse to go into the promised land because they're still slaves to fear. And so how do we harden our hearts? How does a heart harden? From these stories, we can see uh, that a heart hardens in, in three ways that I'm just going to point out today. There's a plenty of other ones, but there's three. First, it's living in the good old days. The first way that hearts grow hard is living in the good old days. You know the good old days. It's that distorted thinking that we all practice when we look back at the past and remember only the good parts, only those parts that we like and were satisfying. The Israelites do this uh, over and over again in the desert. And when they get hungry, they say, oh, I wish we could have eaten that. We didn't even have these hot things to offer them now. They start to remember Egypt. What they remember is their dreams. They doubt their faith. Oh, no, 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 no. All right, they don't need you. And they're having a good turn in Pharaoh and his land. But they're too little to take them this way. So you know, that's what they think of. That's what they love. They, they just think, oh, man, so much food. Just please bring me hot things. But no. Infantile? That's a crazy word to say. Uh, his maniac, baby-killing self. They don't remember uh, that they had to work harder and longer every passing year for less and less. And that God made them, I mean that, that Pharaoh made them make bricks without straw. All they can remember is our flesh pots. All they can remember is the food we ate. And you and I, aren't we tempted to do this, right? To live in the good old days? To live uh, back when it was grand and, and that was good and bad, but we, uh, good. But we don't remember the horror of these things. We don't remember what it was actually like. And so we harden our hearts. The second way is thinking with your stomach. Thinking with your stomach. You see, the Israelites get angry with God and they harden their hearts as they start to think about what they want, what they want to do. I get to coach uh, four-year-old soccer right now, and it is an adventure. It's awesome, but it is an adventure. And I will uh, invite a kid to, to play a game with us, and they won't do it. And I say, why? Why won't you play this cool game with me? Why won't you play? Because I want to play. I want to play. Maybe 
your life based on what you want to do or don't want to do, it's not going to make much of a life. It's a terrible way to live your life. I don't want to wake up in the morning when Jack wakes up. But I ought to. I don't want to pay my taxes. But I got to. I don't want to eat salad. But my heart needs it. Want has nothing to do with what I ought to do. Often my wants and my oughts are not connected. And so, but, but we build our lives on wants. In our culture, the desire is self-justifying. We now live in a society that says every desire of my heart is in itself self-justifying. It is it's justifiable just because I want it. But it, it builds us into a bunch of four-year-olds who say, I don't want to. Or I want that, and so I'm going to do that regardless if it's good or bad for me. I've told you this story before. My son Jack threw the biggest hissy fit of his entire life because I would not give him razor blades one day when I was cutting the caulk out of a shower. He wanted them. They would have killed him. Same thing we see with the Israelites. They want, and then they, and they, they live out of their stomach. They live out of what they thought they had, but also what they're uh, thinking for. And they live wanting water or bread or quail instead of thinking with their hearts what they actually need and how God's been faithful. And all of this builds up into resentments. We see over and over again they grumble against Moses. In Exodus 15, 24, it says they grumbled against Moses. In Exodus 16, verse 2, it says they grumbled against Moses. And then in 17, verse 2, that we just read, it said they grumble against Moses to the point where they were going to stone him to death. In three chapters, they've gone from celebrating the man who led them out of slavery to hating this man enough to kill him and go back to slavery because they've nursed this resentment. They've built this resentment. And then in Numbers 13, they actually stage a coup against Moses. They actually nurse this grudge to the point where they um, try to put another person in power over him. Uh, Aaron and Miriam conspire against him. To lead the people back. We see this happens again in Numbers 14. We see these resentments grow and harden and harden. And it reminded me, here recently, I was riding in a car uh, with a buddy of mine who is uh, an old timer. just a genius and he was reminding me that there's this line that says uh, and that resentment is the number one offender resentments destroy more alcoholics than anything else from resentments stem all forms of spiritual disease that resentment is the biggest threat to your spirituality and my spirituality that resentment is probably the biggest threat to your connection with God and my connection with God. And when he started to, to point this out to me, it started to crush me because I realized that so many of us are worry about all these other sins, but we fail to see that when we nurse grudges, when we nurse resentments, we actually start to sever ourselves from God, that they are the number one defender who destroy more Christians than anything else, that from resentments stem all forms of spiritual disease. And I started to pray through this idea, and I started to think about the scriptures, and the more and more I thought about it, I thought about in the, the Lord's Prayer where he says, forgive us 
uh, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus says at the end of that in Matthew, he says, for if you forgive those who sin against you, your father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you fail to forgive those who sin against you, so also will your father not forgive you. This terrifying thing. start to kill us and they start to harden our hearts and the cost of this is immense running through it we see uh, in verse 13 it talks about hearts that are hardened by sin's deceitfulness the cost of hardening our heart the cost of sinning is scars sins build up scar tissue on our heart sin is ultimately self-mutilation it is um, spiritual cutting if you know what uh habitual cutting is and it builds up scar tissue around my heart every time I choose to doubt God's goodness every time I choose my way instead of God's way every time I nurse a resentment every time I live in the good old days or I think with my stomach and so satisfy uh, my libido instead of my soul every time I do that I start to I cut my heart and scar tissue forms so that I actually get less sensitive the second part of this is that we saw in Numbers 14, the Israelites would not go into the promised land. The Israelites were scared of the promised land, and they made a plan. Instead of going into the promised land, which would involve some war, they would rather march back to Egypt and live as slaves. They would rather settle for slavery instead of fighting for victory. And when we harden our hearts in sin and disbelief, we settle for less than God's best. Sin is always settling for less than God's best. Lust is an impoverished form of love. Uh, greed is an impoverished uh, form. Um, these are less than God's best. When I get greedy, I actually have less. And so when we sin, we settle for something less than God's best. But our world is going to want to tell you again and 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 again that God is the miser, that God is the one holding out on you. And if you live by God's laws and commandments, if you live by God's um, teachings, if you follow Jesus, you will have less life, less money, less joy. You will live a life, you might as well live as like a, a bald-headed, shaved monk in a, in a cave somewhere. But the, the opposite is true. That when we choose to go against God's teaching, whether it's on money, whether it's on anger, whether it's on uh, how we eat and, and how we take care of God's earth, we will actually have less instead of more. And this will create in us an eternal restlessness. This will create in us a sense that something's not right. And we will move from object to object, from person to person, trying to satisfy our souls. From one bad relationship to another bad relationship, from one unfulfilling job to another unfulfilling job, until, uh, and we'll just keep moving. 
but we don't have to live this way. Hebrews wants us to learn from the Israelites' mistakes, and so we're told here in the wilderness ways that we can soften our hearts today, ways that we can step into it. And so I just want to point out three of these and then give you some practical suggestions. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice. You see, Jesus is speaking today. In the wilderness, Jesus is still speaking. Today if you hear his voice. If you'd only listen to his voice. The Bible believes that God continues to speak. The Bible is teaching us to listen for God's voice. And so how do we learn to hear God's voice? Well, first, we learn it from Scripture. That's what the, the preacher in Hebrews is saying. He says the Holy Spirit says, and then he goes on to quote Psalm 95. We're told in Psalm 95 that King David wrote Psalm 95. But Hebrews doesn't say David says or David said. He doesn't say the psalmist said. He says the Holy Spirit says that the author of Hebrews believes uh, that in Scripture we hear the voice of God, that everywhere in Scripture the Holy Spirit is speaking by human authors. Holy Spirit using women and men to speak to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, says it this way. It said, No prophecy ever had its origin in a human decision, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, we're dealing with something much more than human experiences. We're hearing the Holy Spirit speak. The Holy Spirit spoke through these people, and this should arrest us. Anytime we want to deal with the Scriptures flippantly, when we get arrogant and think ourselves wiser than the Bible, and so judge what we will listen to and what we won't listen to, this should sober us. Because Hebrews is saying the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And sure, that is intimidating. And, and we have to work hard at, to understand it and to interpret it uh, faithfully and correctly and to use the tools that God has given us. But this should sober us to take the Bible seriously because the Spirit spoke through David and the Spirit spoke through Moses and the Spirit spoke through Deborah, and the Spirit spoke through Jesus the Christ. And now the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Scriptures. Look at the verse, look at the tense of the verb. It says, the Holy Spirit says. Not said, says. It's a present tense verb. It means that the Spirit is speaking. But Psalm 95 was written hundreds of years before this before the book of Hebrews was written, and yet the author of Hebrews says that the Holy Spirit says, though these are ancient words, the author of Hebrews believes God is still saying them to the people in Hebrews, and he is still saying them to us. Right now, God is speaking to us through these words. Are you listening? You see, if the previous point that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible should sober us, the fact that the Holy Spirit is still speaking the Bible to us, still reading the Bible to us, should encourage us. So many of us are scared to read the Bible because it seems too hard or too complicated. Like you have to be an English PhD or Indiana Jones to understand it. But be encouraged. If you go to the Bible asking to hear from God, God will speak to you. God, by his Holy Spirit, is still speaking through the scriptures. And so I just give you, practically, read and find a Bible reading plan. There's one on the back of your bulletin. You can read every week what we're going to prepare for for the next sermon series. There's questions to guide you. 
But if you don't have those questions, you can always ask four questions. I think of this as the cross method. You can ask, what does this scripture teach me about God? The top of the cross points to heaven. What does this scripture teach me about God? The foot of the cross points to the earth. It says, what does this teach me about human beings? And then the right and the left arm say, is there an example or is there a command? Is there an example to follow or a command to follow? And that's how I apply it in my life. You can always ask that. Second, we see uh, that our hearts are softened in community with one another. You see verses 12 and 13 say, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need one another to soften ourselves, to, to, to be soft, to stay sensitive to God's Holy Spirit. You cannot be a lone ranger Christian. I've asked hundreds of people this question lately, but there's this fascinating idea in America right now that you can be a Christian without being part of a church. If you believe that, I need you to show it to me in the Bible. Like, I just need you to show me one Christian in the Bible who is not part of a church. Because I can't find it. I've read the New Testament again and again and again, and I just cannot find it. Because we need one another, or our hearts will grow hard because we have an infinite propensity to justify our own actions and our own beliefs. And the last thing that softens our heart is we remember God's ways. You see that he said, uh, God said up in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, it said that their hearts were always going astray and they have not learned my ways. For 40 years, they saw what I did, but they didn't learn my ways. For 40 years, they saw what I was up to, but they never learned my ways. They kept doubting me. It's almost like God's saying, like, what else do you want me to do? I've showed up in the good times and the bad. When you were in need, I satisfied your need. When you were in need, I satisfied your need. When you sinned against me, I forgave. When you trusted me, good things happened, and I have brought you all the way to this place. I delivered you from Egypt, and I sent plagues, that, but I preserved Israel. I sent manna, I sent quail, I sent water, I sent a mediator. And now for us, on our wilderness journey, we have to constantly remember that, Jesus, that God sent Jesus for us, that everything we've needed, God has provided in Jesus, that God loved to use the long way around to form character in us because it's how he formed character in Jesus, that just as Jesus had to learn uh, patience, and, and maturity and perseverance through suffering. So you and I will learn patience and perseverance through suffering. Just as you and I, as Jesus had to learn joy and satisfaction and contentment, stepping out of his comfort zone in heaven and walking the trials of this life, you and I will learn them the same way. That it is on the long way around that God is pre pre preparing us for what God has for us in the future. And next week we're going to talk a lot about that. And so what are our applications? Three things real quick. First, worship. Worship softens a heart like nothing else. Singing, forcing myself to remember God's goodness puts me in the right frame of mind to trust God more than I trust me. That it is in worship. The author of Hebrews quoted the second half of Psalm 95, but the first half of Psalm 95 is all about worshiping God. Second, application I told you that we're in danger of being slaves to our stomach and so I'd encourage you 
fast. When I fast, I remember that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth, that I need God more than I need salad. And when I fast, I use my natural hunger pains. When I get hungry, I use that as an alarm clock to pray. Because I don't know about you, but I just forget to pray. Anybody forget to pray? Like I do. I get busy. But when I'm fasting, I get hungry. And every time I get hungry, I think, pray. And in the last couple weeks, since I had that conversation about resentments, God's done this incredible thing in my life. He's shown me that I can use resentments as an alarm clock to pray to. Every time somebody comes to mind that I am tempted to be angry at, mad at, distrustful of, fearful of, it's an alarm clock in my soul saying, pray, pray for this person. You see that old timer there in the car said, hey, Andrew, you know what the cure for resentments is, don't you? What a question. Like, right? Like, what a question. I almost laughed at him. Like, the cure for resentments. Yeah, what? I said, what is it? I said, well, I mean, I'm, I, I know, but go ahead and do, tell me anyways. Just make sure we're on the same page. And he said, you pray for that person you resent every day for two weeks. Every good thing you want for yourself, you ask God to give it to them. And at the end of two weeks, you just let it go. The cure for resentments is praying for that person. In that moment, I laughed out loud, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, that is an ancient Christian practice, something that Christians invented, praying for your enemies. But what I love about you is you actually know how to do it, where so many believers don't know how to pray for their enemies. This week, when you find yourself getting angry at God or angry at someone else, pray for that person. Don't beat yourself up for being resentful. Use your resentments as an alarm clock for prayer. And finally, I can't encourage you enough to work on a gratitude list. Jack is four, and every night before he goes to bed, he tells me one thing he's thankful for. I say, thank you, God, for, and he says, my Legos, or the parade, or for mommy, or for buck dog. Gratitude is the cure for heart hurts. Let's pray. God, we trust you and we need you today. Make us faithful. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our friends,